What are you? I'm all good. What are you? Mike Jones. Yeah. I really hate that we started this episode that way. <laughs> That's how we start every episode. I didn't I didn't know what you were going to say with it. I just wanted to keep asking you and see where you went. So I'm happy you went the Mike Jones route. Mm-hmm. Morning. Welcome to Don't Feed the Artists. I'm Hagen. I'm Dave. I'm Adam. I'm Jackson. And we are uh, going to be talking about something that I specifically requested. And I, I think I've been requesting this for a while. It's been a while. It's been on... Yeah, if we had a shared like Google Doc, it would have been there for a long time. Yeah, it's something I can blabber about for a while. Uh, so you know, I did prepare for this, but if I'm gonna be honest, I could have talked about everything I'm about to talk about. You know, as soon as we finished recording last time. So you know, where well, you say blabber, but you have meaningful insights into the topic. Okay, thank you. I'm just gonna say that I didn't realize that um, Adam's water bottle has an Apple logo on it. Did you guys realize that? I did. No. I didn't realize that. I got it for free. Where? When I worked at the <laughs> store and I took it home. <laughs> Swipe. Adam also has a serial number on his butt cheek. Yep. Really? Yeah. Only Jackson knew that. Come on. How do you know that? <laughs> Who do you call for service? Two questions. How do you know that? And Adam, why haven't I seen your butt yet? Uh, how do you think I got... Or uh, how do you think he... <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. From yeah, behind. How, how do you think, guy? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's it. So, uh, completely unrelated to what we just did, uh, we are here to talk about Jeff Buckley. Um, I think most people are familiar with Jeff Buckley through his uh, cover of Hallelujah. Uh, That was really how he was brought into my life, of course, but not really how I would say that I actually got into him. So, what we'll be talking about today is the life of Jeff Buckley, and then he has a studio album called Grace, where we're going to kind of go into an in-depth conversation with that, and then we'll wrap up uh, the episode after that, just kind of after uh, that album. So we will probably have some chapters in there. Uh, have We have this structured as I got some early days, and then... Uh, I'm just not going to tell you all the structure. Yeah, you don't have to go through that. Here's a preview of the show before the show. I'm really nervous, guys. So we're talking about Jeff Buckley. Um, Are you guys, uh, is anybody here familiar with Jeff Buckley outside of Hallelujah? Uh, I was a little bit. uh, My my brothers listened to Jeff Buckley. But also, uh, I very quickly, because I'm quite obsessed with documentaries, specifically music documentaries, as soon as I heard Hallelujah for the first time, I sought out a music documentary, and it was very upsetting. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, playing music with you, Jackson, and playing music with Andy, um, both of you have cited Jeff Buckley, and at different times I have listened to Jeff Buckley because of that. Um, and then listening again for this episode, I was especially like, oh, yeah, oh, there's some Andy and Jackson in my ears. I love this. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah, It's very obvious with uh, Andy because he used to, he um, sang the song uh, Grace, the chorus, yeah. as his yeah. um, sound, check. sound check for vocals. I think he still does. Yeah, I'm sure he does. That was one of the things that first time I saw him live, I was like, oh, fuck. But <laughs> I know this guy. Also, still to this day, like... If I was if I was forced to choose one song to listen to, one recording to listen to, and only that for the rest of my life, it would be that uh, the Alleluia by Jeff Buckley. Yeah, yeah, specifically impressive yeah. choice words, Adam. I've been familiar of just his music that's appeared in 
like TV shows and stuff. And Shrek. Shrek, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't, no, I didn't realize that. Is that really a thing? That's where it, like, blew up. Okay. Shrek, yeah. yeah. I right. thought that was, um, I haven't seen Shrek since Rufus Wainwright. Yeah, yeah. It was Rufus Wayne. But Rufus yeah, Wainwright's. But it, it's like I know Jeff his, Buckley's version of yeah. it. Yeah. Jeff Buckley's version. It's not version, his song. What, right. No, no, no. But Buckley's version was in like the credits for like uh, the West Wing or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't so. be shocked. It's a Leonard Cohen song. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're here to talk about Jeff Buckley. Um, so I'm just going to get into it, starting with the early days before, you know, he really got into the, uh, the music thing. So Jeff Buckley was born Jeffrey Scott Buckley in anaheim california in 1966 if you don't know where anaheim is that's southern california uh it's best known for disney world land yeah way fuck. to go <laughs> disney world land can we just scrap this whole thing <laughs> it, dude, the only reason i know is that i just went and it took me so long to get it straight which one is which i had to keep asking kara like we're going to which one again disney world or land you went to land. the original one. that's when you just say we're going to six flags disney <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and 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 just to double down on anaheim being known for disneyland they oh, that is the only thing they're known for. they do like fireworks at disneyland like every night right could and you, they're some of the best fireworks you'll ever see. Okay, but could you imagine living in Anaheim? Like I, there, there was there were nights where we didn't we weren't at Disney, and so like I'm like walking around like the parking lot of our hotel or like at a restaurant in Anaheim, and I'm like, shut the fuck up! I'm trying to eat dinner. <laughs> this is so what? Stop. So Disneyland at that point had been uh, there for eleven years uh, when he was born. So it, it was established. Uh, Anaheim is known for Disneyland. Don't they have an uh, NHL team? I have uh, no clue. Yeah, maybe. I don't know the answer, and I'm asking the wrong people. <laughs> they, they also, they also that's, that's also where Nam is. If you are a music person, which you probably are, if you're listening to this podcast, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're listening I mean, to a podcast about Jeff Buckley, you're probably a Nam person. <laughs> probably a music person. Uh. I mean, I guess it, it is good context. Though at that time, it was like it was a smaller yeah. Southern California town. It wasn't the extension of la it is now right yeah but so. he uh so jeff buckley had expressed that you know like growing up in that area it was very influenced by like everything revolved around disneyland yeah. so mm. it does have so that they basically kind of, sold the whole city to disney so yeah yeah, yeah. It, it has that weird sheen of like as a kid kid he was excited because he could go to disneyland but as you know you grow up it, it had that feeling of artificialness and you know he became more transient as he grew up and it makes sense so he was born to uh, parents Mary Gebert, it's like Gilbert without the L, uh, I'm not going to be saying that much, and Tim Buckley. So here's where I'm going to kind of differ from a lot of how people tell this story. So Tim Buckley, just so you know, is a was a famous musician. In the 60s and 70s, he was uh, primarily like folk, kind of like an Art Garfunkel type stuff. Kind of loosely jazz influenced yeah. as well. So, he, yeah, he did uh, progress a lot. At, uh, I'm not sure how many albums he had, but it was it was one of those things. He had like a half dozen albums or something like that. I, I remember looking this up because I was curious about, you know, his father being a musician too, obviously. Yeah, so he was active for, you know, just shy of 10 years. And he ended up having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine albums. God very consistent. I'm so happy we're on Sesame Street right now. <laughs> nine, nine albums. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, so he has nine albums in, you know, nine years. Uh, that That's back in the time, you know, in the 60s and 70s where you, you release right. regularly. That, a couple of those yeah. came out uh, in one year yeah, as that, well. Yeah, if, if you were to do one album a year, that would actually probably be like kind of slow output. 
So right, it's not not anything compared to the Beatles. So yeah, or Elton John. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel bad about that one. <laughs> so uh, Tim Buckley, this is where a lot of people, and I think it's just how Jeff Buckley's life turned out. People end up comparing the two just because they both had short careers and they did sing similarly. Um, and if you don't have enough meat on one story, where can you get more? So there, there's even a, I forget what it's called, but there's a, a, a book, uh, a biography that is literally split in half. The first half is Tim Buckley. The second half is Jeff Buckley. I don't like that. I feel it's a bit reductive of Jeff Buckley's own uh, achievements. And you can see it later on. There's there's this, um, on I think it's on the BBC, he is performing the title track, Grace. And um, the person who's introducing him says, uh, like, oh, people uh, introduces him as like, oh, you know, he can sing just as, uh, you know, vibrant as his father tim buckley and you can see jeff buckley in the background do like a sarcastic yay <laughs> so it, it you could tell it bugged him so well he, he didn't grow up with his dad no. in the picture right so there's also that angle of like that has to suck when you make it as a musician and everybody's like well yeah what about your dad though who wasn't there yeah like the flip side of like like or the comparison of like jason bonham and john bonham it's like you have like someone who like grew up with his dad, lost his dad tragically, and then just is trying to, not trying to be his dad, but like, you know. Keep the like legacy. Yeah. yeah. And then very opposite of, in this scenario. Yeah. So with that, it has been reported, it, it varies whether it's one or two instances, but from what I've seen uh, and read about, it, it seems like uh, Jeff only had two occasions where he actually spent time with his biological father. Uh it was his parents split up. I don't believe they ever married, but his parents split up and uh, Tim Buckley ended up doing a lot of touring and went down the musician lifestyle, even got married to someone and had a separate family. Uh, so Jeff was raised by his mother and stepfather, whose name was Ron Moorhead, whom Jeff was extremely attached to as a child and even went by Scott, quote unquote, Scotty Moorhead. He did not go by uh, Jeff Buckley for, uh, you know, pretty much all of his childhood and, uh, and like his family still called him scotty yeah like, like it, even after he was jeff buckley they, they'll they would even in interviews today because a lot of his family is still alive his mom still talks about him is I, I think the mm-hmm. uh is the lead of the estate and is the person who like trickles out stuff uh, still refers to him as scotty that kind of stuff but i think it's important to point out that his father died of an overdose yes a heroin overdose also died very young yeah, yeah. in 1975 Tim Buckley died of a heroin overdose and it was not too soon after uh, Jeff Buckley spent like a weekend with him. Um, And, you know, this is where you get into the, you know, conjecture and like, did this happen? That kind of stuff. But like, supposedly uh, Tim Buckley had said stuff like, like, Hey, like you should come back more often. Like you should come back to my house. And then like, I think it was a week or two later he died and he was 28 years old. As I said, you will see that kind of parallel go uh, going forward. But shortly after uh, his dad dying, Jeff started going by Jeff Buckley, to which brings us to our first question. What nickname was Jeff Bu- Jeff Buckley <laughs> given as a child? It was inevitable to do Jeff oh, Buckley. It was Jeff inevitable. Buckley. It was inevitable. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> 
God damn it. Uh, Scotty Moorhead. Yep. There you go. Dave wins. It's definitely not Jeff Buckley. <laughs> yeah, no, people called him Jeff Buckley. So, uh, fuck. Lee. <laughs> I'm doing terrible at this. You're doing a oh, fucking great, great job. Yeah. All right. It sucks doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, it definitely does. So, <laughs> way to really help out. No, I'm just, no, I, no, I've tried to do that before on the no, rock no, and roll no, episode. No. I did the intro and yeah. I was like so fucking nervous. And it, I know where you're at. Yeah. Beth, doing a great job. Beth Juckley is my guess. Yeah. Beth. Beth Juckley. Jeff big, big Jeff Juggly. <laughs> big Jugs Buckley. <laughs> this is my friend, Big Jugs Buckley. Chungus. <laughs> Chung Bungley. Buckley. Muggley. So what's the right answer? Jeff Buckley. It's Keith Buckley. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. Woo. It's warm in here now. Um, so at this point, uh, Jeff starts getting into music. Uh, primarily, he got into playing guitar. That's what he was interested in. And uh, he was very close with his... Um, grandmother on his mother's side um i don't have her name but mary's mother uh and um he found an acoustic guitar a classical acoustic uh at her house and that's kind of where he started and was like i'm interested in this started taking lessons and then he got you know a an electric guitar and so then from there uh he, he has that typical upbringing that we come to expect from music legends you hear this from kurt cobain's that kind of stuff but you know listens to classic rock bands specifically zeppelin dude was a huge zeppelin fan there were all these stories of uh you know him being able to play along with songs he had heard once and then on top of that uh he would talk about how he um listened to physical graffiti by led zeppelin all the time and literally just stood there with his guitar and learned the whole album from front to back it's interesting because uh like i'm I, i'm sure you like if i thought about it i could hear the guitar more like in in, in his playing but i can definitely hear the robert plant in his voice yeah like i definitely hear the, the the whether or not it was like an intentional thing it likely was just a subconscious listening to it over and over and over again but i can totally hear where that comes from there's a there's a solo on grace where i was like oh there's jimmy page <laughs> which it, it, you know i i think jeff was able to see this in his lifetime, but Jimmy Page ended up becoming a fan. He yeah. had all these famous fans. Yeah, uh, Robert Plant. Yeah. I was going to say, didn't they both, one of them said like it was their favorite album of the decade or something? Yeah, I think so. that was Jimmy Page. Um, so, you know, skipping over, you know, some of his early days. Uh, just... Anyway, the rest of his life happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, scene. You really so... yada yada through a bunch of stuff there, didn't you? <laughs> so, uh, uh, after... life happens. After uh, graduating high school, Jeff moved. To Hollywood uh, to attend the Musicians Institute for only one year before deciding to move on. I have never heard of the Musicians Institute. I have. For context, uh, specifically for guitar at that time, that was like one of the best things you could do. And that's what he was studying was yeah. guitar. And uh, to compare it now, it'd be like if you did a year at Berkeley, you can still say that you you were at Berkeley. Yeah, that's what Dream Theater did. Yeah, it's super what John intensive. John Mayer did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And it, it's attached to your name forever. Yeah, so he did a whole year, and that's not a full program, but he did a year there and then decided, oh, you know, I've gotten what I can get out of this. And he, in fact, was like, that was a fucking waste of time. Yes. <laughs> he was not kind about it. So uh, to this point, Jeff was known to everyone as a guitarist. Uh, he rarely ever sang, which is uh, shocking because if you listen to, once again, I'm, I'm not trying to connect the two uh, so much, but if you listen to Tim Buckley's music, 
it's not guitar heavy. It is experimental. Uh, it's kind of going that prog route, but like the vocals are really what sells it. There's a lot of vib- vibrato, that kind of stuff, just uh, soaring vocals, uh, which, you know, genetically you would hope is passed down. Um, and especially with what we come to know Jeff Buckley for, it's shocking that like there was a time where he was playing in bands, cover bands, metal bands, and just did not sing at all. Can you imagine being the guy that's like, I fucking had Jeff Buckley in my band and he never sang a note. Right. We just, we just had him play background. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Apparently he would sing occasionally. So like primarily backup vocals. Yeah. Like he, for like six years, uh, he was in like struggling metal bands. And when I say metal, I mean like hair metal bands at the time. There are like some photos. It's like the Pantera shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that's what he looked like was the early Pantera. What's interesting is that like, is that like you think about like, you know, why some people, you know play music and a lot of times if, if if it's someone who like doesn't like music school or something like that they play music for themselves and we all play music for ourselves right mm-hmm. but at the same time like there's people who specifically are like i'm just doing this to like get my emotions out or like feel my emotions in a different way and i would assume that jeff buckley was kind of like that so uh, singing probably was just something he only wanted to do and he wanted to do it yeah well yeah and his mother was like wasn't she like a concert uh would she play the oboe or something like that? Yeah, it was something. And and yeah. maybe piano as well. And then his father was who his father was. He grew up in, in that kind of a household where there was like so much musical influence. Yeah, and the only tie that, you know, I, I will concede to that a lot of people, you know, are correct on is that like I, I think there's there was a lot of resentment to be what his father was uh, because of how that turned out. So if your father is known for vocals and you end up finding, oh, I want to do music too, you're probably not going to want to do that. Should have picked up the fucking oboe. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. And and his father was like, he's not allowed at the funeral. I don't want him to come to the funeral. Oh, yeah, we didn't didn't mention that. Yeah, which we'll get into in our next section. So uh, this is where we get into... And I read the fucking notes. So you read the <laughs> yeah. We'll get into what I am calling the cafe days. And this is uh, the period of life uh, that um, Jeff Buckley himself called the cafe days. So in 1999, he uh, flew to New York City. Sorry, 1990. Uh, flew to New York City from Southern California. And the idea was, you know, I'm going to fly out to New York City and I'm going to make it. Um but, you know, what ended up happening is he had very little opportunities. So then he ended up coming back to L.A. And briefly while he was there, he ended up uh, linking up with his father's former manager, who is Herb Cohen. I didn't know if I should say Herb. I almost said Herb. <laughs> I think both are both are fine, right? It's Herb. Herb is it's the definitely, definitely Herb. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Herb is East Coast and Herb is West Coast. I've never met someone named Herb. Have you? I think, no, I think, no. I think, I think. I've also never been on the West Coast. <laughs> Herb sounds, I guess both sound like old people names, but. All right. Herb. Herb. Fully loaded. <laughs> Herby. So at this point, uh, Herb Cohen. Calls him. <laughs> Herb Cohen uh, helps him uh, put together a demo tape to attract uh, industry attention. On this demo tape, you have songs uh, like uh, Last Goodbye, which uh, there, I think. A total of four songs and this has been released at this point this demo tape um he basically was sleeping on his couch and they uh worked out these songs together and um i don't think it got the attention that they wanted so then you know we're still in that 1990 to 91 this is when uh you know that didn't pan out didn't get the industry attention 
Jeff Buckley comes back to New York City in 1991 to perform at the, uh, you know, per an invitation at a tribute to his father called Greetings from Tim Buckley. So this is, you know, plenty of years, like a, a decade plus, two decades after his uh, death. And um, basically, he people didn't expect him to come. People didn't know, you know, oh, can he sing, that kind of thing. At this performance, he performs his father's song, which is called I Never Asked to Be Your Mountain, which are very pointed lyrics that uh, were written about Jeff and his mo- mother. So it's, it's a very... Uh... I'm sorry, I thought it was what... <laughs> Which are written about Jeff and his mother. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Sorry. How how old is Jeff at this point? Oh fuck, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Quick math. Uh calculator. Uh nineteen ninety one minus nineteen sixty six, twenty five years old. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So he's twenty five years old and he performs at this uh and the reason why he, because uh, a lot of people asked him later on, you know, why did you do that uh, if you are trying to distance yourself as much as you can from your daddies? And what Dave was saying, he wasn't invited to his uh, funeral, and that was very much closure for him, which is very sad, especially when people look back at this. This is widely talked about as Jeff's like public singing debut. People right. talk about this nonstop, even, even though it's not. Well, and which of course Jeff like rejected that description. Yeah. He hated it. Well, like, I did that for me. For certainly, closure. though, it was like one of the more high-profile, yeah, performances he's done at that point. Yeah. yeah. So when there's inevitably a biopic, this is going to be either like I wouldn't be shocked if this is like the ending scene, oh, God, or like not. I wouldn't be shocked this, if it's not included though, if he didn't appreciate that. This, so. this is this is this is probably going to be the end of like the first act. Yeah. This is the you know go the out. turning point. Yeah. 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 So uh, from this point on, uh, he basically he's made his debut. People are like, "Holy shit, he can sing just like his dad!" And uh, if you go and listen to that song, "I Never Asked to Be Your Mountain," it is one of the more uh, vocally uh, complex songs of Tim Buckley's. I'm not a huge fan of Tim Buckley, so I don't know all of his uh, music, but this is, I think, his biggest song from what I can tell, um, and it's probably because of Jeff Buckley at this point. Um, so from here on, he kind of stays in New York and then we, that brings us to 1992 and he begins, this is where everything is going to start rolling along. Uh, so he begins performing at a, uh, club. It varies on description, but it is called Shanae. Um, and, and that is in the East village of New York city. Um, the reason I say it varies on description is because my understanding of it was always a coffee shop. Yeah. But then it changed uh, after Jeff Buckley's time to like a traditional venue. So well, and that's the thing that was happening around that time in the you know East Village and like Brooklyn and stuff. There was these places that were just weren't supposed to be music venues became music venues because you know certain performers played there. So yeah, and so what Jeff Buckley was doing, there's wonderful uh, live album of this. What he was doing is basically getting up there with an electric guitar uh, and just singing. That's what he was doing. It wasn't an acoustic set. It wasn't this, you know, really detailed uh, thing. Um, He played these uh, long two to three hour sets, which he compared to long distance running, where he'd run out of planned songs and make completely confident decisions for the rest of the set. Basically, he would play, if you listen to the live uh, recordings of it, pretty much the first uh, 
20, 30 minutes of, you know, the three hours is his original stuff. And then after that, he's just like, all right, here's some, here's a 10 minute version of strange fruit. Here's all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's a low stakes, high reward for an artist. Yeah. Uh, I can, I can't, I, I obviously haven't done the same thing on his level, but like I've spent years, fucking years playing in dive bars where it's a four hour night and it's like, it really is long distance running, but you really do get to know where you're at musically. The other thing is when you think about like the transition from playing in high school or playing around your local town, you move to a new city, you have to do these shit eating gigs where you play for a long fucking time. And then when you hit it big, quote unquote, if you ever get to, you never play for four hours. It's probably 45 minutes or 30 minutes. Unless you want to. Unless you want to, but, it. it's, yeah. it, but most people don't want to. Yeah, because you've just you, been doing it. And you can pay a high dollar to go see your favorite band for an hour or an hour and a half, and that's generous. Yeah. yeah. So these really are transitional periods of artists' time that have really paid their dues, and it's huge. It's huge. So he was doing this for, you know, it seems like a year, maybe two years, uh, but these shows started to attract, and, and like, People would get, uh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of uh, the curve here. So um, these shows uh, started to attract label attention, exactly what Jeff wanted. And uh, it was a regular sight to see multiple limos just out on the street outside this very small cafe venue where apparently the owner of the, uh, I think his name was Sonny, uh, the owner of the venue would get calls from like label execs saying like, hey, can I reserve a table tonight? And they're like, no, that's not how it works here. Like, if you've seen Tick, Tick, Boom, there's that joke in it of, like, hey, we're a diner. We don't take reservations. Yeah. It's very much that, apparently, where, like, they'd be like, hey, just show up, and if you can get in, you can get in. Just imagine telling that to, like, 10 label executives trying to, yeah. like, sign this dude, and Jeff Buckley totally ate that shit up. Yeah, I love that, too, because for a while, he actually ended up avoiding uh, big labels. Well, and apparently, for a while, uh, it was... Um, like everybody knew it's very clear, like in a good sense, it was a powder keg of like, Jeff's going to, he's going to sign. Yeah. It's just like, we're all waiting on bated breath. What's he going to do? Is he going to do a small, is he going to do big? We don't know. So what he ends up doing is he signs to Columbia records, which in my opinion is one of the bigger record companies. Is it, isn't that, I uh, mean, where, especially where... at the time. Yeah. It was one of the, I guess more prominent ones. Maybe. Yeah. Was that not where Clive Davis is? Because uh, Clive Davis went to see Jeff Buckley play it. I'm not at, sure. Yeah. I know that the the reason why he ended up uh, going to um, Columbia and signed for this three record uh, deal is that he um, was like, well, that's where Bob Dylan is. Right. Yeah. So was, like, yeah. It, it made sense. He he wanted to be one of these legacy acts, and like most people, when you talk about him, obviously in retrospect, they always said, oh, well, we always thought he was going to be like a Van Morrison, where he had like 30 albums, that kind of thing. So right. He signs to Columbia Records for a three-album deal and released a uh, live album called Live at Chennai before recording his debut in 1994. So this uh, original uh, live album, it's an EP. It's four songs. But that being said, they recorded three nights, uh, and uh, later on, they released a Legacy Edition, and it's what I was referring to of, like, these three hours. This is say multiple hours, yeah. It, you know, like, I'm not, this is not the way to come into Jeff Buckley, but if you're a fan of Grace, go back to this uh, live album. It is, you can formidably, uh, don't know if I nailed that. You can see, you can see where. <laughs> that was where, a home run. <laughs> I, I still can't think of the word. 
formatively. Formatively. Formatively? Yeah, formatively. Is that? So what then, what does formidably mean? I thought, I thought that was what you were trying I to say. That's I thought you were trying, trying to say formidably. For. What, are you, what are you getting at? What is, well, formatively is formative years. Yeah. Right? But formidably seems like a, a, re, a retraction of something. No. <laughs> for, 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 doesn't like formidable being like, like I, don't, I don't know that's i'm asking yeah. it means like strong intimidating, yeah, strong intimidating. so like formidable oh. yeah so for like formidably would be like that these were very formative years for him right yes yeah. so you can very formative years you can see the formation <laughs> of jeff buckley <laughs> so formidable. formation <laughs> moving on uh these are really foo fighters years for him yeah <laughs> The big Foo Fighters years, <laughs> which is actually interesting when we get into his album Grace. I do want to talk about like uh, we're not going to talk about it specifically right now, but what was happening in Seattle as opposed to what was happening in uh, New York City when he's recording Grace, and I'm of course referring to uh, the grunge scene. So now we get into the next section of this, which is Grace. Most people know that uh, Jeff Buckley had one album, and this is what it is. Uh, so Jeff Buckley accrued a band that uh, behind him that uh, consisted of a drummer, second guitarist, and bassist. And from there, they spent six weeks in Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York, recording his debut, arguably, if you consider the EP, which, by the way, a lot of people, whenever everyone who knew Jeff and was like, man, the talent on this guy. And then his first major label release was this like live, uh, like not even acoustic. Uh, people were just like, that was bizarre that he did that. Um, so then he goes into the studio and records his first uh, full length, which was called Grace. And then, uh, you know, in the middle of those sessions, uh, uh, he kind of steps away to do a uh, solo tour for that live at Shanae. And I think that was only like a week or two and then comes back and finishes it. So this is where we'll kind of get into uh, talking about Grace. So it's a really, it's, it's a tight record. It's only 10 songs. If you listen to it on streaming platforms, they've tagged along an 11th song, but the original release is only 10 songs, seven of which are originals, three of which are covers, including his famous Hallelujah cover. It is a it's 51 minutes which is shocking when you think about it's only 10 songs because nowadays you see a 10 song record and you think oh that's going to be 30 minutes long um this was the first album i ever bought on vinyl really yes not the first album i ever bought in my life but like record yeah like no that's still yeah that's a big that's intentional thing yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. it is it that that was in that very early like whenever everyone gets into vinyl they're like oh well you buy your favorite yeah. Whatever, yeah, I'm only going to buy stuff that I'm actually going to listen front to back. So this was the first one, and uh, I think it's warped my copy of it. But, man, uh, absolutely. Is that from listening to it too much? Yeah. Good. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely love this record. It's a 10 out of 10 from me. Uh, we'll just kind of go through the tracks. Uh, did you guys have a chance to listen to it? Yay. Uh, full disclosure, I, for this episode, listened to it for the first first time all the way through that's exciting i've tried to listen to it before i think we're probably on the same page hagan i've tried to listen to it before and i've thought like well okay i know what he was capable of and i wish that i could have heard more records because i would go back this would be a record that i think i would have went back to and been like with more open arms like this is great with arms wide open maybe with arms (laughs) wide open yeah Um, oh god 
Anyway, <laughs> but in listening to it now and and having my arms wide open because of this episode, <laughs> almost got you. Uh, fucking, it's so good. Yeah. So it opens up with a song called, uh, you know, and a lot of people, uh, once again, who knew Jeff Buckley were kind of thinking like, hey, I really like this, but like, how is this going to translate? What, it, what? And there was a bit of a confusion just by them, the label releasing that live at Shanae EP that shows a bit of a hesitancy of like, hey, how do we market this? Is he a solo act like Dylan? Does he get, do we get him a band? There was a clear yeah. Well, and especially if, if he had been known for those live shows where you know regardless of it being three hour sets or anything it was like that's you know who he was for a lot of people yeah and and to really like nail down that like it seemed like they didn't know like how to market him that album cover does not convey what you're about to listen to no, it looks yeah. like a blues it looks like a blues album <laughs> it looks that, like a number of different things that isn't like a what you jazz album yeah exactly that album cover is i would say part of the reason i had not listened to this album or 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 like a Even folk after, looks like a straight yeah, up folk yeah. album cover i expected it to be the music to be more folksy than it is and, and because I, and, of that album. And we do have that like that like benefit of knowing Hallelujah. So like there is that whole like yeah. we know Hallelujah. So I bet this looks like it's gonna be a full folk record. That was the song I had heard of his before this, and so yeah. I was like, well, that I don't need a whole listen to a whole album of that. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and I was the yeah. exact same way. Whenever I was getting into Jeff Buckley, I think I, I I read what got me to actually finally just listen to it is. There was this like interview with uh, Pete Wentz from Fallout Boy, and he was just talking about how like when he was like kind of figuring out how to deal with his depression in his life, that like a turning point to him is he remembers sitting in his car just crying, listening to Grace by Jeff Buckley, and I was like, okay, I like crying in my car. I'll do this. <laughs> do you like crying in your car and Fallout Boy? <laughs> Listen to Grace by Jeff Buckley. So it uh, opens up with a song called Mojo Pen, which it, I think if you're going to talk about like a transition from that like um, solo artist to a band, this is a very smooth you know, segue into it because it starts with this really atmospheric thing and then uh, atmospheric tone of uh, just him kind of singing over light guitar embellishments and then some uh, really light drums with the snare turned off uh, come in, and then it just gets into a big thing of a large rock band, and it shows, hey, this is what he can do. Well, it's, it's, it's a really good intro to the album as a whole just because of that same kind of thing. It's the only song to start that record yeah. be because yeah. of all of those reasons. And then you hear, like, as I was thinking about all, only knowing Alleluia, I thought, like, well, then who do you get to back up this kind of a singer and this kind of a guitar player at this caliber? Yeah. And we'll come to find out that they did have trouble finding people to suit his style. No. So then you move into the second track, which is uh, the title track, Grace, which Hagen uh, uh, is very familiar with, at least the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> it's a driving rock song, and uh, the lyrics are really, you know, I don't think this was intentional, but uh, Jeff Buckley tackles, you know, the what he claimed was accepting your mortality, uh, knowing that it's okay that if you have a short life, at least you had love. Yeah. That is the point of this song. And it's just like, holy shit. Knowing what happens to right, him, that's yeah. very sad. So no, just to get a little deeper into the chords and stuff like that for that song, um, these chords are not, when you if you look at them on paper, um, it's clearly written by someone who understands theory. Uh, to what extent that that year at the Musicians Institute played in his 
I don't know, artistry, uh, we'll never know. But it's unbelievable how complex those chord changes are. And with the setting that they're in, you can't really tell if you're not a musician or yeah. if, you, if you're not an avid music listener. And it's unbelievable what he was able to do with the melody and the way that it follows. The weird thing is that it I didn't know the lyrics until like diving in a bit deeper, but the chord changes do subtly go downward mm. while uh, getting more major as the song goes on. So it's like, fuck. Yeah. There's a... Um on youtube there's a uh documentary about him called amazing grace and the very last scene of it is him doing the vocal take for grace in the sound booth and it is just like it is the whole like from start to finish and it is just like really pointed especially when all you have is the lyrics and it's just like holy shit this is there's there's a lot of cool instrumentation in this as well of um there's this one part where you know he's talking about time in it you know kind of the idea of mortality and uh how much time do you have in life and there's a part where um the drums do this do ka, ka, do ka, ka, but he hits it's only rim shots on the side of the drums, so it sounds kind of like a ticking clock and when you're talking about this ticking time it's just like it's really subtle but it's super cool especially to see that coming out of somebody's first album with a, a bunch of quote-unquote hired guns yeah that's super cool so moving on into the third track uh last goodbye I'm a super big fan of this song, but it is probably one of the more straightforward, just like it's a ballad. And I think this was his attempt. I think this was one of the songs that he wrote with his uh, father's uh, old manager. And it, it, it does feel like, you know, trying to get that kind of appeal. Um, but it hits the falsettos. Best bass riff I've heard in a long time. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody just blank stares like, cool, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cool, man. I think I think one of the things like to note about, about like what you said about the last song and with this song with the bass riff and everything is that like this is a this is a guy. I mean, I'm sure that the band had had input, but this guy this is a guy who has is very poignant and intentional with what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So even the little things, it's like yeah, that, I mean that that does sound cool, but like a great bass riff in a very specific song as like this like in, in, in like a in the kind of like a ballad kind of thing, right? That's like that's that's intentional. That means something. Well, and it's a great bass riff in that it's not standalone a great bass riff yeah it's that it addresses the song very very well yeah and i mean you think you think about like you think about how a lot of like bands write like uh like write anything and it's like it'd be cool if there was like a great bass riff right here it'd be cool if like yeah. you, you hit like you hit like side snare right here or something you know it's like it's like it's it, it's all kind of forming together like that where it's, it doesn't it doesn't minimize the meaning of it but in this context I feel as though the intention and the, the, the meaningfulness comes out a lot clearer. Well, and here, here's another reason why on this record it's a great baseline, is that up to this point there's been so much harmonic information in the first two songs that you could be kind of already getting tired ears. Maybe in 1994 it wasn't that bad, but uh, at this point that baseline really grounds the harmony of that song, and uh, I'm not going to say it's the first time, but it's the first time that the main riff of a song was with using the simple harmony of sus chords going to, to major chords. So it's really grounded at this point and it's a perfect third song. So there, there were a lot of stories of uh, supposedly uh, he was a very like um, poignant person. He was very uh, meticulous. He would plan stuff out, but then also the people who had worked with him in the studio did say he also was really good about like just, he would take input. He would let people like some. He, they said it was fun. People like would 
recommend somebody but cool let's try it and it, it wasn't like a very like he was driving the ship this is how it was sure. gonna get done. Yeah. right he so. wasn't like too rigid about it yeah, yeah exactly you don't go years playing super long shows without being memorable right. yeah and so that brings us into the first cover uh there there are two songs on this album that i would say really like vocally just showed me okay holy shit this is this is where he comes from both of which are covers. Uh, Lilac Wine is the first one, and I really I, I don't know how to explain this song. It's just like I had never heard this song, Lilac Wine, and I mean it's so smooth. Everything he does on it. It's a it's like a nineteen thirties nineteen forties Tin Pan Alley. And it feels song. that way. It feels that way, but it also is like he it's uh it's that song with Jeff Buckley giving it a hug. Yeah, he, he basically, <laughs> the the main focus, it really, it's slow. It feels like the band's kind of like ebbing and flowing. It doesn't feel like it's to a click. It feels like they're kind of just like, it's a wave that's going back and forth. And then you have Jeff Buckley hitting these, and he's just like gliding over these falsettos that you can tell are just effortless. Effortless. <laughs> so... But he's also, you know. he's singing through those chord changes because, okay, so talk about the harmony. Uh, to have complex chord changes in, in the first batch of songs and him to write a melody through it is one thing. But for him to take a cover of something where, from an era where harmony was uh, was dealt with differently. Yeah. And he's, in this day and age, at that time, applying his skill to that harmony and doing it as effortly, effortlessly as he did, uh, it's really impressive. Yeah. Um, and then we move into the halfway point of the record, uh, So Real, which is an, an original song. And this is one of those songs that I find myself relearning on guitar almost every year because it has this, it goes back and forth from this like waltzy feel on the guitar to a very straight. And then the vocals themselves, like it is just complex in every way, but it is actually catchy. And the vocal track was done in one take at 3 a.m. Jesus, I didn't even know that. <laughs> wow. It's so good. I mean, like, I, I can just talk about him forever. Um, that brings I mean, us... Uh, the, these first, like, five songs, though, do a really good job of showing, like, the, the range of, like, skill and talents yeah. that he had. Like, it's, just so many different, like, feelings to each song that all kind of fit, though, in an album. Yeah, and especially at that time, that was the that was the purpose of a first record. Yeah. We're gonna throw everything at it and see what sticks, especially for labels because they were like, right. But if usually, you have a hit with this song, your next record, we're gonna try to yeah. sway you to make it all that song. Usually, though, they wouldn't all be good. Yeah, yeah, which is the weird thing here. And the other side of it being that, like, we can hear that this stuff is complex, but that's not like that's what makes a complex song a good song is if it's not like just shoving it in your face that it's complicated right yeah. it's it it's a song it's not a fucking math game you know yeah. it's like it's it's it, and that's the thing is like we can hear it more because like like trained musicians hearing things hearing chord changes like oh that's so interesting we're learning a song you're like oh wow this is tricky this is hard yeah but for like every listener who's listened to this just like like especially after hearing hallelujah you go back and you're like this is just great. It's just good songs. You don't listen to it and go, this is like so complicated. That's not the first feeling that you have listening to this stuff. It is actual feeling. No, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't feel pretentious yeah. as a result of that too. But yeah. Cause it sounds like he's saying, listen to how I feel and not like, look at how big my, my genitals are. <laughs> he's not trying to show off his skill in a way that make, that seems virtuosic, but it yeah, is yeah. virtuosic. Yeah. 
you handled that with grace, my friend. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> That's um, awesome. So that moves us into uh, Hallelujah. I, there's not much we can really say about this. I, a lot of people, uh, there's the, you know, it's the Beatles versus Stone. Which version of Hallelujah do you like? Uh, y- you don't have to pick. Yeah. But uh, this one definitely is great. I mean. It's whatever one you fell in love with first is going to be the one that takes the cake. Yeah. I think. Because it's like we were talking about last week. Whatever gets you into the song, then that's going to be your favorite thing. But the thing is, uh, for me and for any of our listeners that listen to jazz, the way he handles that intro, he's quoting Alleluia, like the rhythm of that word that, and the way that he sings it throughout the entire song, that intro uses that as a theme. And I do know that Brad Meldow, the pretty famous jazz piano player, is known for playing ballads. And at the end of the ballad, he uses the theme of the lyric to improvise these wild outros. And I think, I, I know for sure that he's a huge fan of Jeff Buckley. And I want to say that that's where he got the idea to do that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a wonderful cover. It's There's a reason why most people just know him for that. But if you move on to the next song, this is the song that changed my mind about Jeff Buckley. Lover, You Should Have Come Over. It is... I, I mean, it's got to probably be one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, definitely in the top three. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely the best song of this album, I think. It's... As a standalone thing. Exceptional. Every time I hear it, I'm shocked. Uh, just like, oh, wow, I wish... Why is this not bigger than Hallelujah? Yeah. It it's just, too complex. It, and that might be it. Um, it has That's him playing harmonium in the intro and throughout yeah. the song. But it also has organ on it, and it's like... Uh, it's right. almost seven minutes long. Yeah. I, yeah, it, it is a long song. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I tried growing up to like do a cover of this with every band I was in, which was foolish. But like just like the impression this song has had on me, it is so just understated. The way so like he plays with his thumb in the root uh during the the chorus, uh the thumb on the root of the guitar, and then he'll do um the chord shape on the higher strings of the guitar with the rest of his hand. And that's something I picked up through him and then also learned John Mayer did it. And he does it specifically on this song in such a cool way that I was just like, oh, wow, that like that's opened up how I can play this guitar, which I know some people really don't like that. How <laughs> uh, Definitely not anybody in this room, but uh, I'm totally fine with it. Uh, it's it's Hagen. I'm talking about Hagen. You got short thumbs, bro? No, I just I I'm just like you, if you're gonna play like that like that bar chord shape, why are you gonna use your fucking thumb when you can use your finger? So he's not playing bar chords. On yeah, this, yeah, so, but I'm yeah. saying most people would do that for like a bar chord, which is right. stupid. Yeah, that is stupid. But if you're not doing it for a full bar chord and you yeah. want like an open A string, yeah, then that's a great opportunity yeah. Yeah. to do that. So lover, you should have come over. It's definitely my favorite song. I mean, it's just wow. I mean, if you if you're looking to like get a past Hallelujah in your repertoire of Jeff Buckley, just listen to this song. Go straight to that song. Also, he's the only listed vocalist on the record, and there are some real crazy backup vocals in there that yeah. sound like females, and it sounds like a, a choir. Well, I, speaking I, of that, I, I, would, go. I would even say that like like the, the, the first time that like you hear him belt on the record is like that's not him yeah no shot like and then and then and then suddenly the falsetto comes in and then there's the songs where it layers both and it's like this is wild that this is the same person yeah if you talk about the next song which is the last cover on the album corpus christi carol <laughs> i was shocked at, at like the first time i heard this i was like holy shit that's not him singing it literally kind of sounds like somebody learning how to do opera yeah if like you were female opera that he had control over his voice 
listen to those two songs in a row. And it's just crazy that he chose on his first album. I mean, it just goes to show of like, as I was saying, like he did covers of Judy Garland songs all the way to Bad Brain songs during his Shanae sets. And then you do this traditional Corpus Christi Carol. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. That's just wild. And, and it fits. It doesn't, it doesn't stick out. After, you know, you have Hallelujah and then you have Love You Should Have Come Over, I think it's a nice kind of like, a, it's a breather. It's the shortest song on the record. It's, it's, yeah, it's a little like break yeah, after that it feels like that minute song. I forgot to mention that while we were talking about Hallelujah, but the, the long notes that he hits at the end of that song are my favorite examples of long notes I've ever heard. Yeah. So then you got two more songs on the record. Eternal Life, uh, that's a straight driving rock song. Uh, I think there's been, uh, you know, speculation that he's talking about like police, uh, injustices in this that, uh, don't know if you guys know this, but, uh, uh, Jeff Buckley does not like the cops. So, uh, <laughs> seems like a cool guy to me. Um, yeah, I, I would say that if I had to pick, pick a song that eternal life would probably be my weakest song on the record. But that being said, if you see him play it live, it is pretty, you know, energetic. It seems like one of those songs that when you see it live, you, it, you'd probably be better off hearing it live first yeah. and then hearing the recording. Yeah. Another thing that's cool on that is there's definitely two bass tracks. One track is heavily distorted or overdriven. The other one is not. Quit talking about the bass, dude. Sorry. Can't help it. <laughs> every, every, but, but like another thing about the drums on this record is that I love that it's the first record in a long time that I've heard where it's mixed from the drummer's perspective. Yeah. It's, All fucking records should be that way. Yeah. yeah the fact that... The fact that a lot of way. records aren't mixed that way is, is nonsense to me. Yeah. Idiotic. No, like the general audience Unless does you're a not know. drummer, then it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, like no general audience would know, but the only people who would appreciate that are the drummers. So why not just fucking cater them? Yeah. It, I, whole other thing. I'd also say from the from a drummer's perspective on this record, the use of the full kit is really highlighted on this. Yeah. I mean, like, like I'm I'm a drummer who's guilty of this, and there's a lot of drummers who are really big now who are guilty of just not really using everything that you could put to a kit, like even just two toms, and drummer on this record is like all over the entire kit the entire time. Every every facet he can like it, it's all there. Dude, as a fan of Radiohead, two toms, fuck yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> So uh, we got one more song on the record, uh, Dream Brother. And uh, I, you know, re-listening to the record for this, uh, you know, episode, I I completely forgot how, like, big this song is. It's the same way as Mojo Pin uh, is the way to open this record. I think this is just a yeah. way to end the record. You could argue maybe Lover You Should Have Come Over, but I really think Dream Brother is just, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. It just gets really, it's massive. Well, and the, the drummer and the bass player, I think, wrote the music for it, but he wrote the lyrics. Um, they were written for Chris Dowd of Fishbone, and he was pleading for him to not walk out on his pregnant girlfriend in a similar way that his dad did to him. And the quote on it, he said, it's a song about a friend of mine who's led a rather excessive life, and he's in trouble. This song is for him. I know what self-destruction could lead to, and I have tried to warn him but I'm one big hypocrite because when I called him up and told him about the song I'd written, that same night I took an overdose of hash and woke up the next day feeling terrible. It's very hard not to give in to one's negative feelings. Life is total chaos. Damn. <laughs> so that wraps up Grace. Um, <laughs> for me, it's a 10 out of 10. I think I'm a bit too close to it, but like nothing sticks out. The sequencing makes sense to me. It, it just, it, it flows as, as we were saying, you know, 
first albums at that time were stick everything you can right and see what or throw everything you can at the wall see what sticks but in this but instance there, there's nothing worked. that yeah there's nothing that didn't stick in this case like it's all there's no painfully great. glittery yeah. pop song that's yeah. like oh you guys were trying to sell this record. Yeah. Or, or there's, yeah there's nothing in here that seems like he just put it on there to like satisfy yeah. the label it's like this is all stuff that he wanted to do including the hundreds year old like him yeah like from from a listener perspective this album is just a like whether or not you think it's perfect good or great you're going to say one of those three things if you don't like this album i, I don't know what i like some, someone hurt you're you not hooked up like, right yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah or you have a grudge yeah like like this is this this is a no matter like it is a like 100 percent good album front to back but I, I would definitely go as far to say that like con, like construction wise it's a perfect album and I, I don't think that I found myself getting bored ever listening but I found myself zoning out which isn't a bad thing but I was just uh, it, there were just sections where I was like oh right I'm, I, I need to be listening to this <laughs> it's not it's not a first listen uh, I totally understand this record yeah. you have to you have to and I'm going to give it several more listens yeah to really dive into it so and it's important to keep in context what's happening at that this time musically grunge yeah. uh this and is th the, this is like in direct contrast to that it's indirect it's very warm it's it, it feels loving whereas you know just the year prior to in utero comes out and th yeah. it, this was released the year of kurt cobain's well, death so there's a lot of negativity in the world yeah. th this album also feels timeless like this album could have come out in the 80s uh, and we would all been like Sounds better than most of the 80s, but yeah, I mean... I, I do think it. it does fit in the 90s. Alternative. Yeah, I, yeah that's, I think... That's my one complaint about the the sound of the record is that it, it doesn't sound dated, but it almost... It, it, well, gets, it pushes that limit. I would say it feels dated, kind yeah. of, but not in a bad way. I would also say that, like, it, it's not... I don't think it's a contrast to grunge. I think that it's like... It's like it's like a brother. It's like, it's like, it's like a friend to grunge. Because there are songs on it that I was like... Yeah, this makes sense that it came out in the mid '90s. You know, that makes sense that it like it makes sense that it's alternative. But like, I don't think like I think grunge came f like there's this negative association with grunge because it's like this I don't give a fuck attitude like punk was. But like there were like there are happy and sad songs in grunge, just like there are happy and sad songs on this record. And like the vibe that I got listening to this, I was like. I, I could go and listen to more 90s music now and then be upset because it's not as good as this. But, like, like the, the, the vibe is still there. It still fits across the board. Right. Like, Eternal Life could have been a, a grunge hit. Yeah, exactly. So that brings us into touring. So at this point, you know, the album comes out. It, it does well. It's uh, moderately successful. Um, but, you know, it's a first record. Uh you know, the band at this point extensively tours the world for a few years, uh, uh, specifically U.S., Japan, Europe, and Australia. Um, and uh, just a fun little tidbit, Jeff was known to play on stage left because he wanted to throw off uh, the people who crowded the center stage in hopes to be right in front of him. So, you know who he put right in the front, Dave? The bass player. Yep. Imagine in the 90s showing up and you're like, I'm going to get right in front of the guy I want to see. And you get a big fucking bass player. Fuck, it's the bass player. <laughs> yeah. So. Also, I feel bad for his bass player because it's fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah. No, if you is. spend most of your career like at the back of the stage with your drummer, yeah. and then all of a sudden you're in the middle when people want to see Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Woo. So he was known to do that. Uh, at this point, they kind of, the touring workhorse, uh, it, he was explained to, like, uh, people explained him as someone who understood, hey, it's not enough to just have a good record. I have to 
I have to go out and play it. So he would say yes to everything, was opening up for anyone he could, playing shows, whether it was a small bar or whether it was a theater, that kind of thing. Uh, I got uh, a second question. Um, who can be quoted as saying, Jeff Buckley gave me the confidence to sing falsetto, and it is not Fuckley? I'm going to guess. I have a guess. You guys go first. Um, I'm going it's to... It's a singer. Uh, fuck. <laughs> um, I'm going to guess it's probably 50 Cent. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, Adam? <laughs> you took my guess. No. Um, I don't really have a good guess for this. Okay. I was thinking, good, I was thinking like Chris Martin or somebody, because I know he's been highly influenced by okay. his music. For, for some reason, I seem to remember it being Tom York. It's Tom York. Yes! It's Tom York. Tom York, I, I don't know if this is true, but he was also uh, reported when Jeff Buckley did pass away um, that uh, Tom York was reported to say something like, it should have been me. Uh, we lost like uh, somebody out there. Why couldn't I have died instead of him? Which yes. is very melodramatic, yeah. as Tom York <clears throat> seems to be. Um, it's very Thomas. It's very Thomas of him. <laughs> Woo. Thomas and Herb. <laughs> All right, we're Herb. in our last Herb. section. Uh, so this is where we get into after extensive touring. Uh, Jeff Buckley is now pressured to uh, do. Fuck! I just pulled the fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled. But, I mean, but but also like. We can't understate how extensive that touring was in yes. such a yeah. short time. But but he still has to complete two more records. Yeah, right. Well, just imagine uh, in the span of uh, two years, less than two years, I think it was actually a year and a half, uh, touring a lot of U the U.S., Japan, Europe, and Australia. Don't even imagine touring. Imagine being a tourist and going on vacation <laughs> yeah. and all those. Just doing and that. He, That's he, exhausting. And he blew up in Australia. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. was massive in Australia and apparently Japan as well. Grace went, what, like seven times platinum in Australia? There was a lot of uh, stories of basically people understood him in Europe and that he would come home and it just wasn't, like no one knew who he was. There's, I think there's like an interview with Brad Pitt saying that, who he was just like, it's crazy, like, People just around here don't know who he is. Don't you like, kind of hate that though? Like yeah. because Brad Pitt said it, it yeah. ends up in yeah. the history books. It felt like that whenever that I was in the Brad documentary. Pitt's, it's like Brad Pitt, can we have a word on this? And if he's ever like poop, <laughs> and that gets written up, and he's like, I know that people are going to repeat this. <laughs> so at this point, Jeff Buckley <laughs> is tasked to come up with a follow up for Grace. So at this point, he moves from New York City. He was living in New York City at the time, touring. Whatever you want to say about it, let's say he's living in New York City moves to Memphis, Tennessee in 1996, where he starts to workshop his new songs. Uh, specifically, he would do a Monday solo residency at a, uh, a venue called Barristers. So uh, this wasn't a secret. Fans knew and would show up to the shows, have drinks with him, play pool, and discuss the new album's progress. Um, that's super cool. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, though. just imagine knowing, okay, one of my favorite musicians is ah, there. old Fuckley's over yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Fuckley. And like, apparently they, like people would talk about like, yeah, he sometimes would talk about how he was stressed about the, you know, progress or how he didn't like how the album was turning out, that kind of stuff. And that's so cool to get that. Just like, that's crazy to think too, that that was in Memphis, not New York. Yeah. Cause it would make way right. more sense for him to just be like hanging out at a bar in New York after he right. played a show next door or whatever. 
Yeah. But, but then also, like, imagine being a fan and hearing the second record and going, oh, that was my idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, uh, Buckley and the band, uh, the same band, uh, began recording. Actually, I think they replaced the drummer. Um, Buckley and the band uh, began recording the follow-up to Grace under the working title My Sweetheart the Drunk uh, with producer uh, Tom Verlaine. Uh, but after working with him uh, in Memphis, uh, Buckley became kind of started to express his dissatisfaction with the direction and called up on Grace producer Andy Wallace to step in and help. So it is at this point that they have basically recorded a ton and uh, just wasn't going the direction that uh buckley was wanting new uh new person and he was living in this kind of i forgot what they call it, like a shotgun house uh which was yeah. a studio house and he even at what expressed interest of buying the house because he he liked the house so much that was attached to the studio um so he started he sent a couple of um you know demos, demos to new york city to andy wallace at this point the band is uh, about to fly in to uh, put in uh, the new tracks, uh, start doing the basic rehearsals and demoing for the new album. Uh, while uh, the band is flying in, uh, Jeff Buckley is hanging out with his uh, a roadie, who is a good friend of his, and they were working on some music, and apparently it just wasn't working, so they were driving next to the Mississippi River in memphis tennessee and they I said they were on their way to the studio yeah they were on their way to the studio or practice space and uh jeff was like hey let's just go set up over there by the uh shore and play some music uh so they had a guitar and an amp and uh a radio and so they were doing that they were hanging out and then jeff buckley basically decided oh i'm gonna go i'm gonna go for a swim jeff buckley was known to be this you know carefree kind of dude of like the way the roadie explained it is that jeff was playing guitar Put his feet in the water, and then Jeff's the kind of guy who's like, "Oh, well, it feels nice to get my feet wet. Why not get my whole body wet?" And so at this point, Jeff goes into the uh, Mississippi River, fully clothed, just to swim a bit. The roadie know knows uh, the tide is kind of moving in, so he picks up the radio and the guitar and turns around to put it uh, out of the way of the um, tide. And when he turns around, Jeff is gone. Uh, at this time, the radio was playing "Whole Lot of Love" by uh, Led Zeppelin. And so he's looking around, can't find him. Uh, the band has landed at this point, and um, Jeff, basically, I think it's about four, five days, they can't find him. Uh, they were all hoping that, you know, they would just kind of let, he would show up because he had expressed dissatisfaction with the record, and they're like, oh, he's going to show up with the, the record. This was him just playing a joke. He was that kind of guy. Unfortunately, four to five days later, they found, somebody found his body, and he had died, uh, you know, drowning so a common thing with the mississippi river is if you look at it it is apparently a very tranquil looking water source but the riptides are very strong so and there was a tugboat well, that I was came gonna by. Say, yes it's like an industrial area they were by so there's yeah. a bunch of yeah. boats coming by all sorts of stuff making the, the yeah. water the undertow under. from the yeah. tugboat yeah swept him yeah. into the so I swept him in. It, it very, it's very tragic, not intentional. Uh, autopsy showed he didn't have any drugs or alcohol in his system. It was very unintentional, and with that, any hopes of a follow up to the uh, to Grace were dashed. And at 30 years old in 1997, Jeff Buckley died in Memphis, Tennessee. So when when I watched the documentary, I was like, all right, so like, I wonder what what he did next. Like, what happened next? And it was like, and then he went swimming. Yep. I was like, Fuck! He's dead. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I cried. Yeah. It's really sad. Well, yeah. it, it's very like sudden after this album came out, right? Like it's not that many years at that point. Yep. Uh, so at this point, they have all the demos. You can go listen to what they have called uh, sketches from My Sweetheart the Drunk. Um, it is very interesting uh, to listen to what could have been. A lot of people describe that his direction. He was wanting to go in a, a rock route. That's where he was wanting to go. Um, it, But it's just very hard to tell what was going to happen. There are some songs on there that feel almost completely finished, like Everybody Here Wants You. Um there's some just straight rockers on it. It's but it, you can't help but feel that it's uh, you know unfinished. But the the band basically comes in and finished and recorded what they thought it would have sounded like. So um, I I wouldn't say that's my recommended listen to go in first. That would be no. if you're yeah. a diehard, you're listen to it later. But yeah, uh, I got one more question for you guys, and I think this is the best question. So. Who bought Jeff Buckley's famous 1983 blonde Telecaster at an auction? Do you guys want some guesses, or do you want to just guess? I've got a guess in my head, but it's a similar joke, jokey guess. So I don't know if if I you know I don't if I want to say it now. Uh, can I throw out a guess and then you can give us multiple choice? Yeah, that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, I'm gonna guess Keith Urban. Okay. I'm gonna guess Lil Wayne. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say Radiohead. Radiohead? <laughs> As an organization that we would like Just to pledge a bed. Okay. They each get a part. So let me give you a multiple choice. Please be Lil Wayne, Radiohead, <laughs> Keith Urban. Yeah, started a museum together and they yeah. bought it. Jimmy Page, Matt Bellamy, Richard Branson, or Brad Pitt? Richard Branson, because that sounds like the kind of dick thing he would do. Jimmy Page. Brad Pitt. It's Matt Bellamy of Muse. Fuck, that was my se- that was my second thought. Is what it he was got it. it? He got it, and uh, when he bought it, he took all these pictures. He talked about like he's like I had a whole team vetting this. I didn't know if it was real. It was. We don't know how much he paid for it, but it, it was wait, valid. Wait, what do you mean he didn't know it was real? Like like you don't know at an auction. Who knows how sketchy that? Is? Yeah, he wasn't like I, the world's biggest artist. Sure, but that sounds like he just saw it at like you know a little store down at the on the square or something I was like that looks like that i'm gonna have some experts better. any any guesses what it would be valued at we don't know how much oh. you paid for it but it was at the auction you know they put this is what we value this at 70 million dollars two million <laughs> really yeah uh, i'm just gonna go ahead it's I'm fifty thousand. i was gonna say oh my god <laughs> i was gonna say well under a million but yeah, yeah god, it's not, not even rich. close yeah oh um, man i swore Lil wayne bought this guitar for 70 million dollars <laughs> starting <laughs> starting bid uh let me hear fifty thousand dollars Hagen's like 70 million <laughs> damn dude They're like sir this is an auction <laughs> it's not a date with jeff buckley <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and Matt Bellamy claims that he's using it on Muse Records now, which, like, oh, that's no. whatever. That's no, that's disappointing. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I used, I, I do really like Muse, but is like, that, yeah, is I, that how he wants to keep Muse relevant? Yeah, <laughs> by buying, uh, <laughs> by buying Jeff Buckley's guitar. I don't think that keeps you relevant. But... Yeah, I think making Ready Player One the album makes you relevant. God, you oh, that's right. That him. did. That did happen. <laughs> Jeff yeah. Buckley over here. Um, I'll call just... me Scotty. <laughs> oh, my friends call me Buckley. <laughs> um, and I'll end this with a, a, a quote that I like of Jeff Buckley. Uh, when asked at an interview, what are your musical influences? He responded, love, anger, depression, joy, dreams. 
and Zeppelin. And nice. that is the life of Jeff Buckley. That's pretty badass. Well, that's awesome. Jackson, thank you that's so much. That's a pretty great answer for Dude, that, too. Great job. Thank you so much for taking us down that amazing road. Can I stop talking now? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> I got you. I got you. What are we listening to? Are we doing that? Are we We're doing not that? doing that. Doing uh, that? Fuck. Grace by Jeff Buckley. <laughs> yeah, we all listen to Grace oh, by Jeff Buckley. I guess a good way to wrap this up is a uh, if a, a beginner's guide to Jeff Buckley, you've heard Hallelujah. Go check out Love You Should Come Over. Check out the whole uh, record, the Grace. The live album. Well, well, yeah, check out Grace first, and then from there, if you're a fan of that, the live at Shanae, which is, you know, the more just, like, uh, pulled back just him and a, a, an electric guitar. If you want to hear what the album was like uh, live, what Grace was, there is a uh, live at uh, Olympia, Olympia. it's a French uh, venue, uh, where they basically play the album, uh, and it sounds exactly how you'd expect. And then if you, you find yourself a diehard, uh Go for it. Go ahead and listen to My Sweetheart the Drunk or sketches from My Sweetheart the Drunk. There's tons of legacy editions of all of these albums with tons of jams, all that kind of stuff. But I think you really just got to start with the basics. And then yeah. uh, if you're a Jeff Buckley fan, you'll find yourself wanting more and more and more. Like, I think they just released last year, like a demo, Sky Blue Skin, which like fans knew was they out really there for a while. really wanted to hear that. And they finally released it, yes, I last year. it was year. like the drummer that was like, this is his most... Uh, important recording ever and yep. no one's ever going to hear it yeah it's just locked in the columbia vaults yep but it's out there now uh you know there will be a biopic at some point listen to grace well thank you thank you jackson you've done an excellent job this has been quite quite fun good work good high fives put the glasses on take a rest for a second why don't you fall asleep for a second back you guys there. remember the glasses from last week i'm wearing them now. they're still here <laughs> still here so thank you, the listener, for being here with us. This has been a, a very uh, uh, fun and also sad episode, but a great story nonetheless, great music nonetheless. Um, if you haven't listened to Jeff Buckley, like we said, go check it out. I think Grace is an album for everybody. I really do. I, I, yeah. I, 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 re- like, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters what your favorite music is. I think you're going to like Grace. You, if you just want to enjoy something. It. You'll still appreciate and enjoy it. <laughs> Brad, Brad Pitt. They said you were done talking, man. That Brad. was <laughs> Brad Pitt liked it. <laughs> like how deep you went into research. And you're like, Brad Pitt liked it? <laughs> With those fucking glasses on. Do you know if DiCaprio liked it? Yeah, that's all anybody cares Only about. Only because it's Brad Pitt It's too old for it. him at this point. <laughs> it's 27 years old. I know because I was Ooh. born the same year. <laughs> well, there we go. So uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. If you got any uh, stories, any um, you know albums or musicians you want us to talk about, yeah. uh, obviously this is something I was you know already interested in, but I like to learn new things. Yeah, if you guys have suggestions for, for, for deep dives, uh, if you guys have suggestions for, for stories, for anything we can cover that would be fun for us to talk about or that you just want to hear our take on or anything like that, you can email us at anything you want to at don'tfeedtheartist.com. Cool? Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's awesome. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Anything you want. Uh, you can also uh, DM us on Instagram, uh, DFTA Podcast, and you can also follow us on there. We post whenever we uh, release an episode on there. Jackson makes uh, bomb memes for all the episodes. <laughs> I, I can't with the emoji glasses. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, you can also subscribe on any other podcast app you are using. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. That does help us out a whole lot. Uh, anybody have anything else they want to add? Thanks for doing the work. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. Yeah, thanks, Axgen. Thank you, Brad Pitt.
fart ass. Thanks, fart ass. <laughs> ah. All right, fuck off. Get me a towel. And Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt. Get me Brad Pitt. Stat. Get me fuckly!